0: You're listening to Redefining Energy. Your co-hosts from Berlin, Gerard Reed, and from London, Laurent Sagelam.
1: Today on Redefining Energy, Gerard, I'm going to propose you the famous choice from The Matrix: blue pill or red pill. (laughs) Great question, Laurent. Great question. (laughs) But first, a word from our partner, Akira Capital is
0: a sustainable investment and asset development company headquartered in Hamburg in Germany. Aquila Capital invests in real assets and clean energy and sustainable infrastructure on behalf of its clients. So Laurent, before I can answer that question, you need to tell me what the difference between the two pillars
1: I found this image because when it comes to the energy transition, we have two visions that seems both of them very logical, but seems to be totally antagonistic. On one hand, you will have the techno-optimism that was displayed by Elon Musk during his master plan. And on the other hand, you get a lot of literature, maybe pushed by uh, Bill Gates and Vaclav Smil, who basically tell you the opposite. One says, we can do the energy transition. We have the resources, human capital, the materials. And the other one says, sorry guys, you get it wrong and, you know, you will need much more nuclear or technology that don't exist yet.
0: Yeah, you're right, Laurent. It's a great topic to to talk about, actually, because it is obviously incredibly critical to, to our future, you know?
1: Yeah, and the question that we are having is, are we just talking to ourselves in our echo chamber? And you had the idea to bring a real expert from the other side. And I want to hear his arguments and see if I'm not daydreaming or easy just in a parallel universe?
0: Yeah, Laurent, we always have to question our beliefs and, and thinkings. So I, I really, really enjoyed conversation with Doug Hausman.
1: So can you introduce um, uh, Doug Hausman, please?
0: Yeah, I can indeed. Doug works with a division of Burns and McDonnell called 1898 & Co., And Doug has spent years and years, decades really working in the energy space. He was the CTO for the energy energy practice in Cab Gemini. And he's done everything and anything really across the whole energy space. But as you said, he really comes primarily from the sort of the fossil fuels era really. And he has a very clear belief in and around the future, which is probably different than yours and mine. So I, I really enjoy the conversation because we need to question the, your own assumptions, views and ideas, right? Because they might be wrong.
1: Yeah, and it's not really the basil fossil fuel lobbyist. I mean, we are talking about a guy who, of course is based in America. So the, the view of course from America is different from the, the one in Europe. And it's also kind of interesting how Europe is seen from America. And as usual, when you look from far away, We make things very caricatural, and as usual, the the reality is more complex than it is. So let's bring Doug in the conversation. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you very kindly. I
2: appreciate being included in this show. It's one of the best energy shows on
0: the planet. Thank you very much for the kind words, Doug. You know, let let me kick off by just asking, what we really want to do is talk today about how Europe decarbonizes. And I'd love to have your outside in view of what you think of Europe's targets in and around getting to net zero, how realistic they are, etc. Targets and goals are nice,
2: but not sufficient. Putting money against two or three things, which Europe seems to be doing right now, is not an answer. It's a band-aid or a plaster. The biggest problem is gonna be designing a system that works every second of every day for every citizen and keeps the cost of energy affordable. And right now, the goals that are out there in the EU are
0: failing. Wow, that's a big first statement. So can I start with that final word, failing? Why do you think they're failing? Well, let's start with what did the energy
2: prices look like this last summer and through part of the winter? They're failing on the affordable part, and they're failing on the affordable part because sources like wind are feast and famine. Some days the wind blows just perfectly, and you got more wind energy than you know what to do with. And on other days, the wind doesn't blow or blows too hard, and you have none. And we're headed into a variable output energy system without the kind of planning and design to transport the excess and store it in a reasonable fashion so that we can end up providing power 24 seven.
1: What you're saying, and that relates to a conversation I had with a fund manager who told me he was investing in batteries because when he invests in wind and solar, he gets short gamma, and when he invests in batteries, he gets long gamma. And I know it's a bit financial and technical, but I really like the image. So what you're saying right now is that we're putting too much weight or incentive on the generation and not enough on the time and space management, time being batteries and space being interconnection. Am I correct?
2: You are But I would not put the word batteries into it. I would put the word storage into it. And if you think about it, really the industry is a four-car train. You have generation, transmission, distribution, and customer. We need to decouple the generation from the train long enough to add a fifth car, which is storage. And I don't care where you add it between generation and the customer, or if you cut that car up to go between each of those pieces and have storage in different places, but we need to build enough storage to firm all of the renewable resources we're building. And a lot of that is going to have to be longer duration than batteries are capable of providing. Most people are building one-hour and four-hour batteries and saying, I'm good, and they're not. They may do better on arbitrage with one-hour and four-hour batteries, but you're not going to keep the lights on overnight if you don't have longer duration storage than that. I can see probably a terawatt of storage in Europe that is at least 100 hours or 100 terawatt hours of storage. And if you want to do that with lithium-ion
0: batteries or other batteries, that's unaffordable. Doug, can I add two more carriages? Sure. And And correct me if I'm wrong, the two more carriages which make it even more complex is the fact that we are decarbonizing heat, which is, you know, the burning of fossil fuels, basically, and we're also decarbonizing transport. And they make everything that you've talked about even more complicated, Absolutely. We're looking
2: at a 42% increase in electricity needs in Europe to decarbonize transport and a more than 45% increase in electricity use to decarbonize buildings. And so we're asking essentially for double the amount of electricity we have today. And that 45% is assuming that we fix the horrible energy efficiency of many buildings in Europe, and that's not going to be a trivial piece of work to do.
0: Right. Can I go back to what you're talking about with storage? Because I'm 100% agree with you. we need storage. But I could argue, well, actually, we've got loads of storage already. You know, that's how fossil fuels are stored. They're in bunkers. They're in oil tanks, they're in gas tanks. And you say, well, why would you just not use that for those days in January where you have this floater where you've basically got no wind, no solar? Why would you not do that? It's not that the easiest way to do this? Is it the easiest way to do it? Yes. Is the way
2: that people are wanting it done? No. People want to fully decarbonize, and fully decarbonize means stopping the use of current fossil fuels. On the other hand, it's very, very important that we don't tear down coal plants, oil plants, natural gas plants until we've firmed enough renewables to fully replace them. And it's an unfortunate thing to talk about, but we've got to do that. The other thing that we've got to do, which is probably even more controversial, is we probably need to replace something between 60 and 80 percent of the fossil plants with new
0: nuclear. Oh, Leran is smiling. No, he's not. He's scowling. He's scowling. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Look, I understand your point, And of course, that's always the, the problem of the last 20% go to hard zero. But I agree with Gerard. Is the hard zero not the theological view? And in fact, the economics will show that soft zero around 70, 80% can be done with current technologies without having to, you know, massively subsidize long-term storage, whether it be through, I don't know, hydrogen or I don't know what, or trying to relaunch nuclear, which, of course, every politician wants. But unfortunately, the industry has trouble delivering.
2: The industry doesn't have trouble delivering in China, but they've done two things that the rest of the world hasn't. They built a supply base that makes the part, and they built a workforce that is trained to do the work. And they incorporate the lessons learned in that workforce and in that supply base. So they've driven the time to build a new nuclear plant down by 40%, and they've driven the cost to build a nuclear plant down by almost 45%. They've got 23 plants in construction today. They'll have five of those go online before the end of the year, and they'll start seven new plants when those five go online. Eventually, China will have, under their current plan, more nuclear plants than the whole rest of the world combined. But that's not our topic for
0: today. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So maybe, Doug, just can I go back to the storage question, right? Because you yep. know, one possibility is we just used fossil fuels there as the backup storage. Do you see other solutions to that? In other words, if we, if Laurent and myself are basically sort of saying, why are we worrying about the last 20%? Let's assume we have to really worry about the last 20%. What should we do?
2: Well, you start probably somewhere in the Baltic with an area that's fairly shallow, and you build an island that looks like a volcano from the outside, only instead of it being lava in the middle of that volcano, it's water that came out of the Baltic and that becomes pump storage. That's one of the cheapest ways to get very large volumes of energy And we already know that Hitachi has successfully built saltwater pump storage, and we're not taking any land, we're not damming any rivers. Potentially, if we find the right location, we're not even changing much in the way of fish habitat to build something that's fairly enormous. We're looking at something fairly enormous Here in the U.S., whether it will ever be more than a pipe dream, I can't tell you. But the cost for storing a kilowatt hour from a capital point of view, when you do something that enormous, comes in well under a dollar U.S. per kilowatt hour for capital costs, instead of being in the range of a thousand dollars U.S. per kilowatt hour for some of the battery solutions by the time they're fully installed. So there's three orders of
1: magnitude difference between batteries and pump storage. Interesting. I mean, very interesting. I know that the Danes are trying to build an artificial island in the North Sea to collect and probably start balancing the power coming from different offshore wind farms and Let's not forget, we have all the plans for floating offshore wind farm, which, of course, going to be quite expensive. But at the end of the day, they deliver above 60% capacity factor. There also have been studies, I got that from Michael Barnard, that they have managed to map where you could put close-loop pump hydros in the Alps. And there are sufficient places to build massive new pump hydros storage. But, you know, we've seen in Switzerland, the... Uh, takes 15 years to build those things. I can't imagine how much your seawater volcanoes is going to take in terms it's of not years.
2: floating. We're going to build it from the seabed. And it's likely a seven to eight year project if you put priority and have enough construction people. And that's another problem with all of our goals. We don't have a workforce that's trained to do what needs to be done. And we're not producing one. We may be able to get together all the material. That's questionable. We may be able to get all the land use. That's questionable. But when it comes to trained engineers and laborers and electricians, we're not close and we're not going to be close. Latest poll that I've seen for Europe says that less than 2% of students who are in grades 8 through 12 in U.S. equivalent are interested in doing any sort of engineering or construction. The number needs to be closer to 7%. So, Doug, I'd like to
0: just move the topic a slight bit, and and that is towards what do you think Europe should do? What are the steps? If we're going to put a plan in place for Europe to decarbonize, what should we do? What would be your first step, second step, third step? Just go through them. I'd love to hear what you think.
2: Well, there are four of them that come to mind immediately to start immediately because they all take time and they all take money and work. So the first is a nuclear plan for all of Europe to replace something between 40 and 60 percent of the current fossil fuel plant with nuclear, be it small modular reactors or large reactors. I'm agnostic to that. The second thing is a European-wide storage plan that will get you through a wind drought that's two weeks long. Then I'd want to go back to the transmission infrastructure and say, We need to build enough interconnection between every country so it's possible to send 5 gigawatts of power from any one country in Europe to any other country in Europe and know that those paths exist. And when the ETSO was first put together, that path to go from any one country to any other country was well under 200 megawatts. So we're talking about a pretty good size improvement and the fourth piece is to start on a building energy efficiency program in order to try and reduce building energy intensity by between 30 and 40 percent. And that would be my first step.
0: Can I ask you a question? Why did you not mention flexibility? And what I mean by flexibility is really demand side. In other words, being able to link that demand side to load to supply side. Because we learned
2: in Sweden that if we want to put together a demand-side program, it can be done in under a year.
0: I understand. Okay, okay, right. Yeah, gotcha.
2: The four things that I'm talking about are the long-term going to take years to do.
1: I can foresee that energy efficiency is going to be done, and it's being done right now just because of uh, Mr. Vladimir Putin and uh, the war in Ukraine. So energy efficiency, if I look at heat pumps, we are like, plus 38% year on year. If you look at, for instance, uh, Germany, starting in 2024, you won't be able to install gas boilers. The EV charging system is being installed, and a lot of batteries are being used to buffer between the demand from cars and the fact that the network cannot be upgraded as we want. Transmission, yes, there's going to be more transmission going on. But the two first, which is like a massive nuclear renaissance, totally top-down, as you described, and also your two-week storage, I can't see that politically happening. But again, the theory says one thing, and then the politics can surf on it, or just saying the obstacle is just too high. Or maybe they're going to start, but five years after that, there'll be new, new governments, and they just say the, the pain's just too big. I understand your plan. But as Mike Tyson used to say, you know, you start with a plan and then you get punched in the face and you don't have a plan anymore. I completely
2: understand what you're saying, but let me give you Greta's plan. Let's stop using nitrogen fertilizer. Let's stop transportation beyond the city. Let's stop bringing food in from beyond what can be brought in in eight hours time on bicycles. If you want to go in that direction, then we will watch most people's standard of living return to the Middle Ages.
1: Yeah, but uh, when uh, great um, ideas go on the ballot box, uh, they make 5%.
2: And that's fine, but you argue that I'm being too extreme. Hmm. I'm trying to keep society where it is or growing and meet the decarbonization goals of that 5% at the ballot box but also protect the planet overall. If we screw up planet Earth, we don't have another home to go to.
1: Your view is not really the same as the one we saw last month at Tesla Investor Day, where it was full of techno-optimism and say, it's okay, we have enough resources. The amount of investment we need to put, it's like 1% of the world GDP every year. We'll do it, and it's going to be done through... Renewables and electric vehicles and heat pumps and hydrogen uh, for the hard-to-abate sectors. But your view is really very different, and I'm trying to square because I understand okay. what you're yep. saying and I, and I like what Elon Musk said. So, but it seems so far apart.
2: Well, let's go back to the Europeans passing of 2020. We didn't hit any of those goals. We didn't even come close. And everybody was optimistic, oh, this will be easy. We have plenty of resources. There's money. We'll get there. Don't worry about it. We didn't come close because we're going to choose to do the easy, cheap things. And when things get hard, we're not going to change permitting. We're not going to change regulation. We're not going to fix the things that make things hard. And if we don't fix the things that make things hard that are bureaucratic red tape, we won't get close to the numbers.
0: You know, Doug, the way I'm looking at it is I'm actually quite positive because of one thing that happened, and that was the whole Ukrainian-Russian crisis, because what that has done, it has brought energy policy from the Environment Ministry to the Department of Defense and the Department of Foreign Affairs. I think there's real appetite politically now to make serious changes take place. And and as I say serious, I mean also radical. You know, if I go back to the start of the crisis, and don't forget we had a nuclear crisis as well, what actually happened is we kept the lights on. We kept warm through this winter. And actually energy prices have come back down to almost normal levels at this point in time. I want to say for me the radical change is what's coming and the radical change is we're going to speed up decarbonization and we're going to put in place the necessary frameworks to decarbonize quicker than we would have otherwise done that's where it's come from you can't and you know this you can't radically change from one energy system to another over a 12-month period but I think over the next between now and 2030 we'll see radical change in Europe at the individual country level, and it's also at the European Union level. And that's what gives me hope and what I'm positive about.
2: Having lived through 2020 and having heard the European government and the country government say, yes, this will be radical change. This will be a new framework. And then watching the execution call me cynical. They put goals together. They didn't put a plan together. I see more goals getting put together now to do something, but I don't see plans. I don't see the restructuring of the regulatory environment to support those plans. And so call me cynical. So Doug, look, just maybe just to
0: end up, let's end this on a positive note. Maybe I want to end by sort of asking a question. Is like, When you look at Europe going forward and the future of, of energy in Europe, do you look at it positively or negatively?
2: I look at it with a big question mark europe has the ability to get there the question is do they have the political will and the understanding of the population to actually make it happen and i worry that they're going to do the transition poorly and it's going to end up stopping the transition because instead of keeping energy prices reasonable they will end up with more spiking energy prices and lose the faith of the population. That's why a plan is critical so that you're building the right things and not retiring things before it's time to retire them. And I worry that they will retire things before it's time and that will cause price spikes that will make people unhappy.
1: Excellent dog. The debate is gonna rage because you talk very openly and I thank you for that. I see a lot of interesting remarks. That's also the role of the podcast to help the debate going on. Maybe some of your proposal will start switching on lights in the head of regulators.
0: And Doug, I I had the same because it's all about stirring debate. And I, I agree with you that if we go down the wrong route, I say, God help us for lots of reasons. One is because economically it'll just destroy Europe but also it'll be bad for the planet so let's hope that that doesn't happen thanks for coming on the show and, and sharing your thoughts
2: not at all everybody needs to get to a plan that moves things together forward instead of oh let's incent this thing and when we build enough of it we'll just shut something else down. and that's our big problem right now is we're picking a couple of things and saying this is our savior, and not putting the rest of the infrastructure in place to support that.
0: Agree with you on that.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. Much appreciated. As I said, you do one of the best energy podcasts on the planet.
0: Well, Ron, did you take the red pill or the blue pill?
1: Well, I think I took both because I'm a, I like the contradiction. First, it was good that Doug came and was kind of candid around his thinking, but they're just things I can't swallow. And I don't know what the color of the pill is. And I mean, if I summarize his thoughts, number one, prices are high because of wind. This one is factually wrong. And then we've got the type of binary choices, Greta Thunberg and the middle age or go nuclear. So that I disagree. And then uh, his big plan is gigantic seawater pump hydro in the the Baltic Sea, which will be, and I quote, 1,000 times cheaper than lithium-ion. I'm not buying that at all. Well, Laurent, I'm going to come back to your
0: comments in a second because I think we have to start with how do we practically decarbonize going forward? And, And I would say to you, it's all about deep electrification. And deep electrification means one what we're trying to do is electrify as much as we can of the energy system, which in particular means heat and transport. Okay, mm-hmm. We're well on the way to doing that on the transport side. On the heat side, we're only starting. Mm-hmm. The second thing they do is you need to make sure that energy is going to be as clean as possible. Mm-hmm. So there's two forms. There's renewables
1: mm-hmm.
0: and there's nuclear. And if we just look at the facts of it, the fact about it is nothing against nuclear, but there's only 10 gigawatts of it that are going to go online this year. 10 new gigawatts of power. We're putting on one gigawatt of solar a day. Yeah, <laughs> right? Right. And by the way, one gigawatt of solar a day. And then if we look at how much batteries we're producing, we're producing this year, we'll produce two gigawatt hours of batteries, of lithium-ion batteries per day, right? These will go into cars, they go to stationary storage. Mm. That for me... Uh, that's the reality of the technology innovation that's that's going on around it. The third part is digitalization. And let's be clear, Werner von Siemens, if he looks down at the power systems today, the UK, he'll say, Jesus, nothing's changed in 150 years. Now, it's changing radically. The country you're living in, in the UK, it's changing radically there. Why? Because you've got batteries in there. It's not, you know, the turning masses of the past that are keeping the grid up and down. It's batteries. And why I say that is we're at the beginnings of this digitalization. And for me, digitalization is making sure that that supply and demand are as matched as often as possible. And I'm not doubting that you need storage, but the big, big thing you need is is a rethinking of the way the energy system works. That's my vision and view of the future. Now, I know if I'm Vaclav Smil, he will turn around and say, because he's, you know, is a historian. I really love love reading his stuff. He will turn around and say that an energy transition takes a lifetime. I don't believe this. I really don't believe this. And the reason I don't believe it is because of the tech speed of technology change, which is accelerating. He, by the way, says it's not. It's accelerating because we've now got artificial intelligence. We've got all these great minds across the world competing with each other. Europe, China, India, US, all competing with each other. I mean, that's what gives me hope. That's why I get every, up every day and I look and I say, that's the thing. I didn't get that from Doug. What I got from Doug was, it's all tough, can't be done, and, and, and. There was no sense of let's get up in there and then do it. And you, you, you used the example of Elon Musk, if I may say. I love this guy because this guy just goes out and says, we can do it. And by the way, he does do it. He doesn't just talk
1: about it. He does it, right? Look, I don't want to be rude, but at the end of the day, uh, Elon Musk is 25 years younger than Václav Smil, and that counts. At least Doug had the honesty to come and lay out his vision and uh, will respectfully disagree. But what I did take
0: out of Doug is there's no doubt that the transition is hard. I mean, that's what he's also saying. And it's hard, particularly in the Western world, because we've got just so many incumbent entrants. I don't care whether you're the owner of a gas pipeline or an oil company. You're protecting your interests, which means you're there to to slow down change. That's what you do. That's what your defensive mechanism is. You know, you can see the German automobile industry again sort of saying, oh, we need to protect the internal combustion engine. They don't. What they need to do is they need to get a grip of the future very quickly, right? That's what they need to do. It's completely different. So that's what I got a little bit out of him. And, he, and, I, and I take that. He, he's right. It isn't, it's not an easy transition, right? I go back to technology. The reality is, if we today in Europe, 2023, we decide we're going to build a nuclear power plant, and I don't care if it's an SMR or a large-scale plant, It'll take me seven years, at least. I'm being really, really, really kind. Now, it's the probably a decade. You get your approvals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But let's let's. I'm just going to give it. And just, let's just say it's seven years. So seven years, I build my one gigawatt nuclear power station. Meanwhile, over that period of time, Europe will have installed five hundred gigawatts worth of solar. I mean, the reality is the technology, and you can say, oh, it's difficult to get to balance, and it's difficult. To, it's cheap. It's easy to install. It's flexible. (laughs) What more can you want, right? Hmm. Okay. That's what you're up against. It's like mainframe against mobile. Do you want to really have that mainframe? Hmm. Or do you want
1: to have the mobile, right? That's it. Okay, Gerard. We thank Aquila Capital for supporting the show. We thank uh, Doug for coming. And we can't have... Guests that we agree on all the time. So it's good from time to time to have a not confrontational, but I would say opposite view.
0: And I'll, I'll say one more thing. I'm taking the red pill. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll talk to you in two weeks time. All right, my friend. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to Redefining Energy. Don't forget to rate the show and subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or the platform of your choice.